Hello, First City Church. My name is Casey Nixon, and I'm excited to be back with you this week. Uh, sorry we have to meet like this. Unfortunately, as we were planning out our service, we had a co uh, staff member uh, test positive for COVID, and that meant we had to quarantine several of the other staff members who had been in contact. We had to quarantine the band. Uh, we had to clean the facilities, and it just meant that we couldn't meet together this week. So here we are. Uh, Rick will be back next week. Pastor Rick has an amazing message for you as he wraps up the 21 days of fasting and prayer. And I know you're excited to have him back. I am too excited to hear what he has to say. Uh, but as we continue our 21 days of fasting and prayer, I hope you're following along and participating. And, you know, the 21 days are just a chance for us to take some things out of our life, to fast from some things that are distracting us from our relationship with Jesus Christ things that are coming between us and our first love. And so we take these first 21 days uh, each January and we just focus our hearts back towards the Lord. And so what we've chosen this year is a theme of I choose. And we've come up uh, as a church with 21 words, uh, one for each day that we choose to focus on to turn our hearts and our lives back towards the Lord, kind of recage on what's important. And so uh, continuing that theme, last week we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. The first seven things we focused on were the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Uh, we focused on those things and we talked last week about the fruit we're producing in our lives and how we can't produce good fruit apart from the vine. The fruit has to remain in the vine to become healthy, vibrant fruit. And that fruit is on display for the whole world to see, so our fruit is immensely important. And so as we think about that and we continue forward in our 21 days, I just want to continue that thought with you. I want to continue to talk about I choose. And one of the things we choose is our perspective. We can't choose our circumstances, but we can choose how we react to those circumstances. We can choose how we view those circumstances. We can't often uh, change what happens to us. We have some choice in life, but the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, unexpected events, unexpected diagnoses. There's so much of life that just comes at us and it happens to us and we can't control that. But we can control how we respond to it and how we view it in light of who God is and who we are and the part we play in the whole story. And so I want to turn your attention this morning to the book of Philippians first, Philippians 4, 6. Uh, we're going to look at Philippians. It was written by a guy named Paul. Uh, Paul's this amazing author of the New Testament. He wrote so many books. In fact, wrote the most books uh, in the New Testament of any single person. And he writes to his friends in Philippi and he tells them this amazing truth. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, through prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. If you're looking at your Bible, if you're looking at Philippians 4, 6, you'll notice that Paul doesn't say, in the small things, don't be anxious. In some things, don't be anxious. In most things, he says, in everything, do not be anxious. But go to God in prayer and supplication. That's just requests with thanksgiving in your heart with the right perspective and his peace, which surpasses all understanding, will fill our hearts and our minds 
and guard them in his love. That's what he promises us in Philippians. Now, here's the thing you've got to understand about perspective. I think this is so, so important. And I, every time I talk about perspective, I always bring this up to people. You have to recognize we live in a world that's telling you constantly that your goal in life is to be happy, that your happiness is of paramount importance. And I'm here to tell you that's a big lie. And here's why it's a big lie. Because happiness is rooted in circumstances and it's emotion. What you want is joy. Joy is a spiritual condition and it's based on our perspective. Don't miss that. Happiness is based on our circumstances, but joy is a much, much deeper thing. It's found in our spirit and it's based on our perspective. Now we're gonna talk about where joy comes from in just a minute, but I wanna make sure to drive this point home. And so let's just look for a minute, think about an example of happiness. So if I wrote you a check today for $10,000, most of us would be pretty excited. For me, that's a lot of money. I know for most of us, that's a lot of money. And you'd probably immediately think of all the wonderful things that that would allow you to do. Maybe buy that car that you've been thinking about or maybe get into that house you've been longing for or maybe pay off your debt, maybe help your kids with college, maybe help a loved one with some venture that they're into. Uh, there's something you would do with that money and you would go down to the bank with that check in hand and a smile on your face, happy as a clam, and he'd hand that check to the teller, and she'd inform you that I don't have $10,000 to give you. And because I don't have that, that check is worthless. And you'd be instantly filled with either sadness or anger because your hopes and your dreams for that money had just disappeared. Now contrast happiness with joy. I've done several funerals, I've been to many funerals, where in spite of the tears, there's laughter. There's genuine joy that the believer has gone on. They've won the lottery. They've gotten the great escape. They're with Jesus Christ. And while our hearts are filled with sadness at the loss of their companionship and company, we're filled with joy, knowing where they are, knowing that they're free of the burdens of this life, free from the pain that they might have been suffering, things like that. Joy is a spiritual condition and it's based on our perspective and how we view the circumstances of life. Happiness is all about the circumstances and it's fleeting, it's emotional and it comes and it goes. So the goal for us as Christians, as believers is not happiness, it's joy. And joy comes from Jesus. So you remember last week we talked about the fruit of the vine? And Jesus told us in John 15, he was, he was walking from uh, the upper room where he had the Last Supper, where he spent his final evening with his disciples. He's walking to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's about to be betrayed, where the whole story is going to unfold in the great culmination of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's Friday and his disciples are filled with anguish because they don't know that Sunday is coming. That's where we're at as Jesus for whatever reason, I think he may have been walking through the temple for the final time. He may have pointed up to the temple gates to the giant grapevine carved on the temple gates. But for whatever reason, Jesus in John 15 starts with, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Remain in me and I in you for apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus tells us. But he goes on and it's really, really good. So I want to draw your attention back to John 15 today. Look at John 15, uh, verse 9. 
These are Jesus' words. Jesus' words to his disciples, his words to you and me. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. That's right. Your joy comes from your relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus says he wants you to have joy full. That word full in the Greek means filled up, means completed. It means there's no room for more. You can't get more joy than the joy you get from Jesus. It's complete, perfect joy filled to the brim. That's what Jesus promises. If we remain in his love, if we remain in the vine, he promises joy. And joy is the perspective that allows us to see our circumstances in life and face them with the right perspective. Filled with joy. That's what Jesus wants for us. Filled with joy completely. So I want to draw you to a couple of examples of what this looks like practically in life. Okay? So the first one we're going to talk about is, is a guy named Job. And so if you're not familiar with the Bible, you probably call it job because there's no E on the end and I totally get that. My girls and I had a debate last night all about how we should pronounce Job. But ancient history tells us they pronounced it with the long O, so it's Job. Okay? Job's probably the oldest book in the Bible. This is crazy. It was probably written in pre-exilic times. It might have been written before Moses. I mean, this is the oldest book we have and we found some extant copies that are uh, predate Jesus by hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a really, really old book and it's such a famous story. Most of you know the story, the story of Job. Job is the richest man in the East. In fact, Job 1 um, outlines Job's wealth and it lists kind of a highlight reel of what Job possesses and it says he's the richest man in all the East, which really in Job's day means he's like the Bill Gates of the Stone Ages. That's kind of Job. Like he has it all. There's nobody with more than Job. And we see that Satan uh, shows up before God and he, God says, have you seen Job? He loves me. He worships me. He's an amazing specimen of humanity. But Satan, the accuser says, oh no, he just loves you for what he has. You've blessed his life and that's why Job loves you. God says, okay, I'll prove you wrong. You can do anything you want to Job, except harm him. And so Satan does. We read in the latter half of Job 1 that the messengers begin to pour in and they say, Job, you've lost all of your livestock. And Job, they formed a band to raid your lands and you've lost your land and you've lost your houses and you've lost all these things that you possess. And as each one's speaking, the next servant comes in and he relays this tragedy and he heaps tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. And finally, the last thing that happens uh, in rapid succession is Joe loses his children. All of his children die. But it's really important that you look at Job's response. So the end of Job 1, I'll draw your attention. Job 1, verse 20, it says, Then Job arose. Now it's after he heard all these things, after all these messengers came and they reported the loss of all that Job has to include his family. 
It says, then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. Now he's shaving his head and tearing his robe. If you don't know, that's an ancient sign. It's a sign in the Middle East of great anguish and distress. Job is sad. Job is just crushed. But he falls on the ground and he worships and he says these words, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job's response. Job, his relationship with God secured, filled with joy, says, God, I don't understand it. God, I'm just crushed by it. But I'm going to look to you and glorify you because ultimately it's your story, not my story. We talked last week, remember, about the chess analogy. We're really players on a chessboard. Most of us are pawns, even if we picture ourselves as the knight or the rook or the king. But we're just players on the board. And the great chess master is looking down over the whole board, and he has a plan, he has a strategy in every move. is a calculated, purposeful, intentional move. And from where we're at on the board, we don't always understand it. We look out at the other players and we don't always see what's going on. And we don't know the mind of the chess master. But he has a plan. And nothing he does is without intention and without purpose. And so he moves us around the board. Job has this perspective that, God, you're in control. All things belong to you. This must be your doing. And it must be your will. And therefore, it's okay. Job is filled with joy. He's not happy. In fact, he's crushed with sadness. And we see that in his display of shaving his head and tearing his robe and falling on his face, but he falls down in worship. Now, some of you are saying, that's an old book. Are we sure that even applies today? Hey, that's in the first half. That's the Old Testament. I'm a new covenant Christian. I get all that. No problem. I think the book of Job is amazing. I think you should spend some time there. I think it's just a cool, cool book, and I would love to spend months on it with you. Let's just fast forward. Fast forward to the book of Acts 2,000, 3,000 years later. The book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke. Now, Luke is a physician and a historian. In fact, while Paul has the distinction of writing the most books of any one person in the Bible, Luke wrote the most words. Luke is this great recounter of the events that happened. And in fact, he's sponsored by a guy named Theophilus. And Theophilus sends uh, Luke out to, to kind of figure out the story of Jesus. Is it, is it real? What really happened? What's gone on? Luke, come back and report to me the story of Jesus. And that's why we have the gospel of Luke. He wasn't one of the 12, but he was a follower and he had a knack for pulling out the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And that's the book of Luke. But Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is really just a follow-on letter to his uh, friend and benefactor, Theophilus. And it recounts the explosion of what we call the Christian church. Okay, so the book of Acts, it starts with uh, the disciples right after Jesus' ascension into heaven. The Holy Spirit falls on them on, on a day that was uh, already celebrated. It's called Pentecost. It was already a Jewish festival, but for new believers, it becomes the time when God's Spirit falls on believers. No longer does God live up there in heaven. Now he lives in here. It's no longer about the temple on earth. It's about the temple inside of us. And that happens at Pentecost and then the church explodes and, and we go through the first you know six books and we meet this guy named Saul 
and he has this encounter with Jesus. You probably know this story. It's a bright light from heaven. He goes blind and Saul becomes Paul and he becomes from the persecutor of the church to uh, the great defender and evangelist of the church. And so when we get to Acts 16, our passage this morning, Paul, this great um, uh, follower of Jesus, this great evangelist of the church, uh, Paul, he's traveling with Luke and Silas and some others. And I think it's really important because when Luke wrote these words in Acts 16 this morning, he wrote them firsthand. Luke didn't ask somebody else for the story. He says he was there. If you back up just a little bit, Luke tells the story about how they got there. They're following the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is preventing them from going some places and sending them to others. And so they're really in tune with what God's doing and God's sending them to these places. And finally, God sends this group to include Luke and Paul and this guy named Silas to this place called Philippi. Now, Philippi is about eight kilometers inland from the coast in what is kind of modern day uh, Turkey, Greece, in that Middle East uh, region. And so Paul's in Philippi. And in Philippi, there is no Jewish temple. And so Paul knows that Jews tend to meet down by the river on the Sabbath when there's no temple. And so he goes down to the river and he encounters a group of women who are meeting for prayer and to worship the Lord. And he talks to them and, and this uh, uh, woman named Lydia, she becomes the first convent of the church in Philippi. And Lydia shows up throughout uh, several of Paul's letters. She's this amazing uh, convert and disciple of Jesus. And so Paul's doing a lot of preaching in Philippi. And as he's preaching, somewhere along the way, this slave girl uh, who has a spirit of divination, Acts 16 says. So she has a, a spirit in her that's able to tell the future. And that is bringing her owners a lot of money. She's a fortune-telling girl. And so as she follows Paul, she's, she's shouting out, these men proclaim the most high God. Now what she's saying is true. But what she's saying is annoying Paul. It's Satan attaching himself to the church. Remember, remember that Satan's in church. He comes to church every Sunday looking for people. That's what she's doing. She's attached herself to Paul and his group and the, and the gospel message, but she's trying to disrupt it. And so finally, Paul, in uh, anger, in frustration, he casts the spirit out. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning. Acts 16, verse 16. Let me flip over there. Acts 16, verse 16. We pick up the story. All right. Acts 16, verse 16. Uh, we see, so they're going for the place of player. They met. They had a slave girl. She had a spirit of divination that brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, us being Luke, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Not untrue. That's what they're proclaiming. But Satan's really trying to be disruptive here. Verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now that phrase in the Greek in that very hour means instantly. It means it happened right away. It was immediate. The spirit was cast out of this girl. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate for us customs that are not lawful as Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, many blows, many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, the jailer, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now you have to understand this picture. Paul and Silas are grabbed. They're unjustly accused. The mob joins in. They incite the magistrate to not even hold a sham trial. They just execute their judgment. And they begin to beat these guys with rods. And it says that they inflicted many blows. It wasn't administered with grace or justice or mercy. They beat them mercilessly. Make no mistake, when you're beaten mercilessly with a rod, your back is bruised, it's bloody, the skin is broken open, it's welted. These men have been beaten severely. Then they're given to the jailer. Now you have to understand a jail in the first century. It's a dank, dark hole in the ground that most prisoners would be walked or lowered into. They would be put in a cell. The cell would have a muddy floor. That muddy floor would be uh, just disgusting. It's filled with urine and feces and food and junk and garbage. It's dirty. It's muddy. It's disgusting. Now for Paul and Silas to be put in prison and put in the stocks, it means they would have been laid on their bloody backs to have their feet fastened up into the stocks. So here these men are unjustly accused, unjustly beaten mercilessly, severely and savagely. Then they're put in this squalored prison, dank and dark and smelly and muddy and dirty, and they're laid on their freshly opened wounds. That's where they are when we pick up the story. In verse 25, and this is the crux of the whole matter. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That's right. Now, I, I struggle with chronic pain. I know many of you do as well, and a lot of us struggle to get good sleep. When you're in pain, it's hard to sleep, and I think that's where Paul and Silas are. They're laying on these wounds. They're fresh wounds. They've been beaten mercilessly, I don't think they can sleep. And at midnight, they're passing the time, not whining and complaining, not talking about how unjust and how wrong this all is, not talking about the revenge they're gonna get when the guards find out that they're Roman citizens, that this was all illegal. No, they're praying and they're singing hymns and they're doing it so loud and so proud that the other prisoners are listening. Now, if you know the story or if you read on after today's message, you'll find out that God used that event as a catalyst to accomplish something amazing. And it's something that Paul and Silas and Luke and their group could never have envisioned when they were being unjustly accused, when there was a sham, uh, if you can even call it a trial, and they were beaten severely. That whole time, they couldn't see what the chess master was doing. But what he was doing was he was going to reach the jailer. He was going to reach the jailer's family. He was going to reach the other prisoners. He was going to reach them all in a place that they would never have gotten the gospel message. And he was going to establish a church in Philippi. 
And it's that church that Paul writes back to in Philippians 4 when he says, do not be anxious about anything. He's writing to those people that have come out of that experience. And if not for Paul and Silas being unjustly accused and beaten, and Paul and Silas choosing joy and choosing to focus on God and his purpose, not their circumstances, but for that, there would be no church in Philippi. There would be no brothers and sisters to write to and say, don't be anxious. Because in all things, you can go to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And that peace that only God can give, the peace that transcends all understanding, the peace that goes beyond anything we can comprehend or understand, that peace will fill your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. And so today you have the choice. Whether you choose or not choose, it is a choice to be filled with joy and to let that joy come out regardless of your circumstances. To produce fruit by remaining in the vine, it's a choice. It's a choice we all have to make. Our God is an intentional God and he's called us to live intentionally to focus on our time remaining in the vine, our time with him where we fill ourselves up so that we can respond to the world in a way that points others to him and leads others into a deeper relationship with him, not in a way that turns people away. That's our call. That's our mandate. And we have that choice. As we continue on in our 21 days, I hope that you'll be uh, continuing to fast and pray just to kind of cut out the things in life that are distracting you from God. I don't know if it's uh, the internet. I don't know if it's uh, Instagram or Facebook or the television. Uh, if it's something you do uh, when you're by yourself, if it's something you do with others, I don't know what it is in your life that you've allowed to come between you and your first love. But I would just encourage you to set that aside and spend that time with him. It may be something that you reintroduce to your life. It doesn't have to go away forever, but I would just encourage you to take a moment, put that aside, focus on him, and figure out what does God want to do with me in my life? Where is he leading me? Where is he guiding me? What's he doing with me? What's he doing around me? How can I be a part of it? And how can I be filled with joy and take that joy out so that it impacts the world for Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Thank you. I can't wait to see you all soon. Take care.